The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted to be joined by Julie Norman, who is co-director at the Centre on US Politics at University College London. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different for Americano because I think we've spent a good year and a bit now saying that President Joe Biden is a disaster, so much so that sometimes I worry, in fact, some of our listeners have said that we're becoming very partisan and we try not to be partisan here at The Spectator. So, Julia, I think you're willing to make the case for the defence for the presidency of Joe Biden so far. So without wanting to prejudice anything, I think I'll just ask you to start by defending Joe Biden's presidency so far? Sure thing. Well, I'll just start by saying, you know, we know that Biden's approval ratings are very low right now. They're hovering around 41%. But if you look back at his whole first year in total, he did have a number of successes. And he came out of the gates very quickly, really trying to tackle two main things, of course, COVID and the economy. And he did both those things somewhat well. The administration introduced a very rapid vaccination campaign that had most Americans who wanted to be vaccinated, vaccinated by mid-July. He was able to pass a $1.9 trillion relief package to Congress that got a lot of extra aid to families and got a lot of support for, for COVID relief. So right out of the bat, he had some very early successes and many of those bore fruits that continued throughout the full year. He also, by mid-year, was able to pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that was a bipartisan bill. So that was very important for Biden in terms of what it delivered, but also the fact that it showed he could indeed work across the aisle. So he had a number of those big wins. On the economy as well, he, you know, has not just for Biden, but for the U.S. more broadly, and, and obviously many forces going into this, employment is very low, growth is very strong. Of course, the effect alongside that is, of course, high inflation. So he's dealing with that right now. But other economic indicators are very positive for the U.S. at this time. Other parts of his agenda didn't get as much traction and steam, so it'll be interesting to see how he resets on those in this next year. On foreign policy, too, it obviously was a mixed bag. Obviously, withdrawal from Afghanistan was quite botched and quite costly. At the same time, I think he's rightly getting a lot of credit for his handling so far of Russia, Ukraine. So yeah, I would say again, a bit of a mixed bag. But if we look at the year in total, definitely a few wins in there, despite his low approval rating going into this kind of first quarter of this year. Well, I suppose I, I disagree to a certain extent in that I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a good thing to do. I think the American people wanted it. It's obviously in a terrible situation at the moment, but I think that would have happened whatever happened. I thought it, think it was an unwinnable war. And I think Biden actually showed some courage sticking to his principle. And he's, he said for a long time that he thought Afghanistan was an unwinnable war and a futile endeavour. I mean, I suppose I'm not so sure on Ukraine, really. I feel like maybe he's being pushed into being more hawkish than he perhaps otherwise would be because of the widespread sense that um, 
he made a terrible mess of Afghanistan. And, and I think we do have to admit, although I don't think it's his fault necessarily, it's more the, the military and, and America's intelligence agencies that really just didn't understand what was happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on many of those points, actually. I think it's important to note that the majority of Americans did and still do support the Afghanistan pullout. And as you noted, this was a going to be a forever war or as it was going on 20 years and most people did support the withdrawal. And I think it's also important to emphasize that with the deal that had been essentially made with the Taliban under the Trump administration, if the U.S. had not withdrawn at that point, U.S. troops would have been targeted very quickly by the Taliban. So to me, it was kind of two very difficult choices. There really was not a good option there. And so Biden, uh, you know, lent into one of them, which I think in the long term was the best move. I think where most of the critique came was just in how that unfolded. And as you noted, maybe not not being as attentive to some of the military and intelligence advising that suggested how quickly things could unravel there. And sure, what we're seeing now with Russia, Ukraine is at least partly, I think, a response to how Afghanistan went, trying to get out much stronger in front of this potential conflict. Obviously, the early evacuation of Americans and, or uh, not evacuation, but um, call for Americans to leave Ukraine early, I think was obviously with Afghanistan and the very nearby rearview mirror. But it'll be interesting to see if this take on Ukraine-Russia pans out for the administration. My take on it is that for the last year, Russia has really tried to have the upper hand. They've been trying to keep the US and NATO on the back foot by essentially keeping this threat level very high, kind of moving the pieces and making other actors react. And what we see Biden administration trying to do, again, a rather unprecedented move is trying to kind of turn the tables on that and saying any intelligence that we get that might be suggesting something, we're just going to make it public. And so that we're going to put Putin on the defensive and almost kind of preempt his own saber rattling, if you will, and, and make him be the one to make the case about why he's not going to invade. So it's a different kind of diplomacy than we've seen in the past, obviously coupled with rather muscular deterrence. But at the same time, we do hear the administration saying quite clearly they don't want war. They're willing to continue with diplomacy. You know, it's a very obviously tense situation right now, but I think they're wise to take this um, kind of two-pronged approach of diplomacy and deterrence in parallel. Well, I mean, we might get a little bit away from Biden here, but I think it's an interesting point you make about intelligence. I'm very struck that intelligence has become become a sort of weapon of strategy in the way it never was for a long time. And I'm not sure that's actually good because, I mean, you want intelligence. If you're a government, you want your intelligence to be true, even if it doesn't tell you what you want. When it becomes a kind of PR exercise, which it seems to be a lot of the time in in these tensions and, and potential conflicts, that's a bad deal, isn't it? Well, it's been fascinating to watch this, Freddie, and you're exactly right that the way intelligence is used here is very different than we've seen. And I think that's for two reasons. First is just in the past, we would have to wait for, you know, covert aircraft or like very sophisticated technology to be able to get things like the images that we have now coming out in, in terms of troop movements and mobilizations. Now that kind of imagery is available just on the internet. It's totally unclassified. It's available to pretty much anyone who wants to look for it. And so the availability of that kind of, you know, not, not eyes on the ground kind of intelligence, but in terms of just like imagery, it's just so available now that it's changed the game completely. And the second point is just that Russia has been so savvy in the past in using misinformation and disinformation strategically that I think that's one reason we see the U.S. and to some degree NATO kind of leaning into this kind of 
using intelligence, kind of getting things out there ahead because they're trying to preempt that misinformation game that they know that Russia has uh, used in the past. You don't ever think that that we're now saying, because you're so good at misinformation, we're going to do misinformation better than you? Well, that's certainly the, the, the question right now. And I think it's crucial that the U.S. does not tip over into intentional misinformation. Obviously, when you're relying on intelligence and trying to preempt something, there's a lot of unknowns and known unknowns to go back to kind of war and terror terminology. But what we don't want to do is start intentionally spreading misinformation. And that's a fine line, but a very important and crucial one to draw. Let's talk about Biden in Ukraine, because we're often told Biden is an expert on Ukraine. He spent a lot of time when he was vice president dealing with with the Ukrainian situation, which is hasn't changed that much actually in, in the fundamentals. I think at some point we're going to have to get get onto the question of his mental competence. I don't get the impression he's that across the specifics of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Perhaps I'm wrong. And then I also think there is this story, and it's often dismissed as a sort of right wing crazy story, but there is this story about his son Hunter Biden having a a job on the board of a Ukrainian mining company an extremely well-paid job. And the Biden family does seem at some stage to have operated as a kind of business. There was his bro- his brother and his son. I mean, if this was Donald Trump, I know it's a bit boring to do the what if this was Donald Trump thing, but it's true. If this was Donald Trump and he had this much compromat, to use a very fashionable word, this, this much sort of whiff of conspiracy around him, People would be going mad, I think. And it surprised me that more people don't talk about the fact that Biden has these connections in terms of Ukraine. Does Does it surprise you? Well, one thing I would say is the Ukraine situation has been so complicated across both Biden and Trump over the last four years or four to five years, because we should remember that Trump's first impeachment trial was very much caught up in terms of Ukraine as well. And as mm. you mentioned, it was very much in terms of Biden's son's activities there. So one of the U.S., the previous administrations, the Trump administration's um, engagements with Ukraine was, again, to threaten that withdrawal of military aid unless the Ukrainian government was willing to kind of unearth some of this, this data on, on Hunter Biden. So that story in my perspective, is very much part of this narrative from whatever side of the political spectrum one comes from. And the Bidens complicated it perhaps by Hunter's involvement there. Trump complicated it by perhaps having this kind of quid pro quo. So I think I think wisely the administration is trying to move beyond that, look at what's a much more pressing situation there and not get caught up in these more kind of headline grabbing scandal kind of uh, headlines that that can kind of distract. And I think it's perhaps one reason why we see much more voices on Ukraine coming from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, from National Security Council, from other actors within the administration, rather than Biden himself all the time. That's not the only reason, of course, but it's important to see this as the administration's responses and not Biden's personally. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the mental competence. And I think it's, it is crass the way a lot of conservative commentators talk about it. And uh, nobody wants to laugh at the idea of dementia or senility. But he doesn't always appear to be... And we do also have to take into account his speech problems that he's had throughout his entire life. But he doesn't appear to be fully aware of what he's saying a lot of times. He does look lost quite often. He is pretty old. He has had two brain aneurysms. And then you hear his sort of spokesman often talking about how 
you know, the thing that I always worries me more than anything is when you hear a spokesman talking about how amazingly alert he is. Because I always think that's the sort of sign they're, kind of, you know, protesting too much. Do you think he's compass mentis? Do you think he's mentally fit to be leading the free world? Yeah, it's, it's not something I can medically com- comment on, of course. And as someone no. who does not personally interact with Biden, I can't say say for sure. But I mean, there is no medical test for leading the free world, right? It's not like, it's not like <laughs> doctors don't get trained on how to teach that. Yeah, I, I, I would say for myself, Personally, and as an American citizen and voter, I'm, I'm confident enough in, in Biden's abilities. But with that said, I do think many Americans, Democrats, as well as Republicans are aware of his age and are not so concerned about his governance abilities now in this current moment. But I do think there are some concerns with that if he does indeed move to run for a second term, which is still very much up in the air. So I think this will become a bigger point of discussion with how he may deal with just the challenges of aging as, as you know, as years progress. Again, right now, I would say I'm pretty confident in his abilities and the team around him. But for term two, I think that's something that will be on the minds of many voters. So let's, let's talk about term two. I mean, if it's so let's say the midterms go, as polls suggest they will, a large swing towards the Republicans. And you then have a presidency that's already starting to look like a lame duck presidency just two years in. How do you think Biden would sort of pull away while saving face? Yeah, well, I would point out that midterm elections usually swing away from the incumbent and the president. So there's almost an expected now historical precedent for that. You know, we saw it after Clinton, after Obama, after Bush. I mean, that just tends to happen. Um, And just the challenge right now is Democrats have such a tiny, slim majority in both of the houses that that it's just most likely they will they will lose some of that. But I point that out just to say just the fact that the midterms will most likely go against the Democrats doesn't mean they're out for the count. You know, other again, other previous presidents have still been able to get some things done even after that. Mm. Uh, And in some ways, it does force just a different kind of governance. You know, one challenge I think for Biden is he never really expected to have both houses of Congress, especially the Senate. He won the Senate with two very unexpected runoff wins in the state of Georgia in the South. So the way that he campaigned and the way that he was elected was very much almost assuming that he would have to govern a bipartisan Congress. And so I think that almost complicated things for him a bit by having Democrats control both houses because he was suddenly needing to be much more responsive to the Democrats' agenda, progressive and moderate and increasingly more progressive. So in some ways for Biden, I think he can maybe sit back on his more moderate inclinations if, in fact, he does lose Congress. He won't, I think, be as pulled and swayed by the more leftward-leaning parts of the party, for better or for worse, how people view that. So for me, in terms of how the presidential election will go, there's just so many unknowns right now. One, if Biden runs again, if he doesn't, which Democrat will be next up? Kamala Harris's ratings are extremely low right now, so it would be difficult to see her in that position at this moment. Another big question is, of course, if Trump will run, if he runs, that completely changes the game on how most moderates will vote across both parties. And third and finally is just the issues that matter most to Americans, you know, economy, jobs, and to some degree COVID, which hopefully will pass by that time. But if the economy is doing well, the incumbent usually has a fighting chance. If the economy is not doing well at that point, it's usually pretty easy to swing it to the other party. Mm. But there's been a lot of talk in recent weeks, perhaps a lot of it led by conservative voices and people on Fox News about Hillary Clinton 
clearly angling for some kind of comeback in 2024. It wouldn't surprise me if she did try to make a comeback in 2024. If she did, would that not be a bit of a damning testament if she won the nomination, say? Would that not be quite damning about Biden's legacy, that the party is back to where it was in 2016? Yeah, I have heard rumors of it, and I I just really hope that these stay rumors. I mean, this would just not be good for the party, for the country to kind of move backwards in that way. One reason that Clinton did not did not win the presidency against Trump was she was seen as having a lot of a baggage from the past, as being seen as backward looking rather than forward looking. And obviously, there were many other reasons that that voters chose to to not vote for her. But I think at this point, after two failed campaigns. She's a well-respected politician by Democrats. She had amazing successes as Secretary of State in all of her. I think that's a good time to kind of pass the torch to the next kind of generation of, of leaders and not bring things backwards to the Clintons again. But who, who is this generation of leaders? Because, I mean, people, you know, there's a sort of fantasy candidate of Michelle Obama, but there seems no sort of real world evidence that that will happen. And then you have Pete Buttigieg is talked about a lot. Amy Klobuchar is talked about a lot, but they're both people who ran in 2020 and failed. Obviously, we've discussed Kamala Harris is is not looking like a very attractive electoral proposition. Are there people that, I mean, unless the party goes towards its left and embraces a candidate, I think Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez will just legally be allowed to be president. I think she'll be just 35, is it? But it's probably a bit too soon for her. But is that where the party has to go to its more charismatic social media engaged left? I don't think necessarily. And I think we saw that with Biden's election. And again, even though Biden has maybe not governed in the way that all voters hoped or thought he would, at least in this first year, he ran on that more moderate, pragmatic message. And that is ultimately what won him the election, from from my opinion. Obviously, there are large swaths of the left that would like to see a more progressive candidate. And the way our primary systems goes, they will probably, uh, we'll see some of them do quite well. But when it actually comes to the general elections, I think that hurts Democrats in the long run. Most Americans lean more moderate and centrist. And so Democrats tend to do better when they have candidates and then presidents who, who govern that way. And I think that's why we hear voices or um, names like Klobuchar floated, why we hear Pete Buttigieg, because they were candidates who had more of a similar ideology demeanor as Biden in this last round. It is, I think, difficult to to see that they would necessarily be the the nominees. Um, As we saw in this last round, so many different people usually throw their hats in the ring. And again, a lot will depend on if or when Biden himself decides to run or not run. It's very hard for you know Democrats to kind of challenge an incumbent. But if he decides not to run, the field is really quite open. We've heard everyone from, you know, Gavin Newsom has been floated. You know, there's um, enthusiasm around, you know, as you noted, just kind of a range of individuals right now, but no, no real front runner. And I think the field is quite open. Do you think that perhaps one of the reasons Biden's popularity has collapsed quite so much as it has is because he was seen to be a moderate figure. And then, but if you actually listen to his campaign messaging, it, it wasn't always that moderate. There was a lot of sort of revolutionary talk to, to kind of keep the idea going to, to the left of the party, to keep the hope going with the left of the party, I suppose. And then a lot of voters are a bit mystified by, and I hate to use such a cliched word, but it's become a word that we all have to use in a way, the woke stuff. You know, I mean, I think voters perhaps are put off by this 
sometimes very strange emphasis on racial equity. There was this story about crack pipes last week that it ends up with a strange situation where the federal government is treating minorities as more likely to smoke crack, which is racist, right? But that's where equity politics, where sort of insanely politically correct politics gets you. And I think a lot of voters are very put off by that. Am I... Am I well, I, I think you're right that this is obviously a um, a sort of wedge issue in the United States. I think Biden himself personally has tried to stay a little bit above the fray. He doesn't usually comment directly on identity politics issues and has tried to not give in to too many kind of sound bites and whatnot. With that said, you know, in some recent months, he's given a couple speeches, including his voting rights speech in Atlanta, where he, he lent into more of that narrative a little bit more. But I think what we're seeing from voters, it will be very interesting to see if there's a reset this year, because there were certainly parts of the party that were pushing in that way. And there's a big debate, obviously, in the party as to how much that mobilizes, you know, mobilizes people and, and kind of addresses necessary issues and to what extent it's counterproductive. One story we were talking about earlier today, of course, was um, the school board in San Francisco and California Actually, there was a recall of some of the members who had voted to strip the names of Lincoln and Washington from some of the schools to take away a merit-based system at one of the um, you know kind of most most elite public high schools. So this was California, an extremely liberal state, San Francisco, an extremely liberal city within California, and even they were messaging through this recall that they felt things were going too far and they needed things to be back to, to some kind of sense of moderation. So I, I think we're in a certain moment right now with a very specific way of talking about equity and equality, but I think there's an opportunity this year for Democrats to kind of self-correct and bring that back to a place that's a bit more comfortable for more people in the country, if not the party. Because right now, some of the language and some of the policies that are being pursued, I would say the more far left, are simply just, just too much and going a little too far for, for many Democrats as well as for many Republicans. Isn't the problem, though, for the Democrats, I mean, I see what you're saying about Biden trying to you know, keep above the culture wars fray to a certain extent. But the problem for the Democrats is they have wedded themselves since the civil rights era. They've wedded themselves as the party that's always breaking down boundaries, that is always on the side of progress. And then, therefore, they feel they have to attach themselves to progress, even when progress seems to be, to most voters, not progress at all and actually sound a bit demented. Well, sure. And I, I think it's important to note that I think some of the larger aims that some of the progressive side of the party are pushing for are certainly, you know, noble and honorable and well-intentioned. And I think many in the party agree there's always work to be done. Things can always be improved and better on, on issues related to, to race and gender and identity and, and what have you. But I think it's more the means, the strategies, the tactics right now, some of, again, the language that's being used and the specific policies that are that are being put forth that are alienating some. And in fact, I wouldn't say splitting the party, but are definitely causing some disagreements between how we view liberalism, if you will, and liberal ideas and some, you know, seeing some of the current language as almost reifying racial differences and introducing barriers to equality rather than helping us overcome them and, and achieve real progress. So it's, I think it's important conversations for the party and the country to have. And again, I don't think the Democrats need to divorce themselves from their commitment to progress and social justice and whatnot, but they can reorient the way that they're doing it in a way that's uh, much more strategic. Do you think one of the issues might be, uh, we heard a lot in the last election about Obama, Obama, Trump voters, and that Biden seemed, in 2020, Biden seems to have won a lot of those voters back. 
And these are the, the sort of elixir of American politics, aren't they? They're the, the working class, mostly white, though not necessarily kind of backbone of old America, I suppose, who voted for Obama. So, you know, it's a bit absurd to call them racist when they vote for Trump. But they are generally, they're wanting change. They're unhappy in the way America's going. And they are, they perennially seem to vote for the change candidate, even if that means Biden, <laughs> right? So what's, I mean, what I suppose I'm getting at is that there is a class war going on and Biden seemed to appeal to a lot of angry working class people, middle class, you call them in America, but you'd probably call them working class here in Britain. And Biden was able to win a section of that angry working class, but he's alienated them now because the Democratic Party seems to be pursuing very niche subjects and perhaps it's just the media fixating on them, but nonetheless, they're unable to change the message. And it it makes people angry. It makes, you know, the, the masses angry, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I, and I think you're right that that demographic, that working class demographic was obviously very instrumental to Trump's win. And then the Biden campaign obviously focused very much on getting, you know, so-called Rust Belt states back to Biden, working with a lot of blue collar workers, with a lot of unions, et cetera. To the extent that he can hold them or not is is going to be probably one of the deciding factors, of course, in the next election. And you're right. Obviously, there are parts of the culture war elements, you know, a lot of the rhetoric around, say, like critical race theory, things like this, that certainly alienate many of those voters. I think that's why if Biden is smart, he will reset to focus more on the parts of his policies that really do meet the needs of that demographic and others. Um, again, to emphasize more like his infrastructure bill, which just provides a lot of very needed works across the United States and also introduces jobs to be able to do that. I think by, you know, kind of pushing some of what he's trying to do with the economy, what we end up seeing again in election years a lot is just how things are working for people on the day-to-day level. I think if the economy is doing well, if there's more you know, kind of middle-class job openings that continue to be there. Right now, the U.S. is in a very good situation with that. That will help Biden. At the same time, if things like inflation continue, that will hurt him a lot with that demographic who really feel the squeeze when prices are getting ahead of wages in terms of things like buying groceries, putting gas in your car, you know, for people who are really working off, off a hard budget. So to me, those kinds of issues at the end of the day will matter for most people more than some of the cultural issues, but the cultural issues can be exploited and leveraged extremely well during campaign seasons and can kind of take on a life of their own in terms of uh, deterring some uh, members of the electorate. Do you, I mean, I think inflation clearly is the thing that's distressing voters, that, is, that it's, the, it's Biden's biggest problem this year, is it not? The cost of living is going up. Gas prices, which is famously very sensitive in America, are going up. And there is this perception, perhaps it's spread by the Republican Party, but there is a widespread perception that the Democrats didn't really care about it until recently, and that they called it a transient concern. And that, more than anything, is probably what's damaging Biden in the polls. And I don't really see how he recovers from it unless he gets it under control very quickly. Yeah, and I would agree with you on that in the sense that this is probably the most urgent issue for Democrats to address more so than, than say, the culture wars and whatnot. You're right, Democrats and Biden himself were, I think, slow to recognize the severity and the urgency of inflation. 
and we're quick to kind of write it off to other sources in terms of, you know, kind of blaming it on corporations price gouging or even on, on supply chains and whatnot. For presidents in the US, they get a lot of credit, perhaps unduly when the economy does well, and they get a lot of blame, perhaps unduly when the economy does poorly. So there's a lot of other parts of the government that will be instrumental in kind of controlling inflation, obviously our Fed, which, which handles the monetary policy. But a lot will depend on how Biden's own policies move forward as well. You know, obviously, one reason that Build Back Better, his much larger spending package did not progress was because even some in his own party saw that as threatening inflation. So I think, again, we'll see Democrats themselves starting to pay much more attention to this issue. We've already seen their messaging change on it to be taking it much more seriously. And again, as you noted, for for many voters, but especially working class voters, this will be the make or break issue. Isn't that, sorry to bang on about this, isn't that the key problem though, is that the, the, what you put down as his, his biggest achievements, the, the spending packages, relief packages, the infrastructure packages, they are almost certainly contributing to his biggest weakness, which is inflation. And that's where he's in a bit of a catch-22, isn't he? Well, he certainly is. And I think that was going to be a catch-22 for whatever president or administration was coming in in this point after COVID with a rather unprecedented economic situation, because the policies that were put in place that enabled economic growth to resurge, that enabled employment to come back to to very high levels, that enabled the, the markets to continue just to thrive throughout this whole year. The flip side of all that was going to be inflation. And again, I think the administration just underestimated the length that that would persist and the intensity of it. I I guess that's the catch of it. It was not unexpected to not have done those other things would have maybe had less inflation, but you would probably have higher unemployment rates and a much lower growth rate for the economy. So there were always going to be trade-offs. And the challenge for any administration is to find that that sweet spot, which again, post-COVID has been a little bit harder to identify. But what I do think is important is for Biden to be as transparent as possible with voters about, about the difficulty of inflation, recognize that he, you know, to use Clinton's phrase, that he feels voters' pain on this and recognize it's something real, and also is is clear-eyed about why this is an issue um, and isn't trying to pin the blame again on certain industries or corporations and that kind of thing, because it's much more complex than that, and voters, you know, deserve to hear that from him. So finally, Julie, do you think in 10 years, 20 years' time, 20 years, let's go with 20 years, we might look back on President Joe Biden as somebody who inherited a very difficult political situation with COVID, economic situation and political situation with COVID, and who was quite an effective transitionary, as he suggested he would be, a transitionary president. Well, it, that's that's a great question. I mean, I, I think, yes, it's obviously way too early to say what his presidency will be defined as. But if we look back at this first year, Again, ups and downs, but in terms of moving the country out of the dual crisis of COVID and its related economic stresses, Biden did shepherd the country well out of that. Again, perhaps whoever was in office could have kind of floated along those high sales of getting the vaccine out and what have you, but the administration did do a good job with that. And I think most Americans will give them credit for in both the short term and the long term. Judy, that was the most valiant effort I've heard at defending uh, Joe Biden's record. So (laughs) thank you very much for doing it. And um, please come on again. Great. Thank you so much, Freddie. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs) 